believe me when I tell him it starts when he says. Yes. So uh, good afternoon and welcome to the post-lunch session. So we'll try to speak very loudly and excitedly to keep everybody awake. Um, this, this afternoon, we're devoting our panel to talking about the local connections uh, with the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. Uh, I'm Mark Blackburn. Some of you saw me this morning. I'm the chair of the AASLH Military History Committee. I work for the National Park Service. I'm a district interpreter for Mount Rainier National Park, but I'm also a trained military historian. My career went a different direction, so um, nevertheless, I'm glad to be here. And joining me is uh, Lindsay Frost from FOTE, I'm sorry, uh, from, K I can't read my writing, from KCPT, the local public television station, and then Katie Stover from the Kansas City Public Library, and then Bill Brewster, I'm assuming the senior curator from the First Division Museum in Cantigny, Illinois. Kent, the First Division Museum. Um, and uh, so we want to devote as much time as possible to make this a dialogue as opposed to a monologue. But as you can appreciate, uh, the Vietnam War in general and perhaps the, the, um, the documentary by Ken Burns will more than likely strike uh, emotions by everybody in the room. And I think dialogue is critical in advancing our understanding, but I do ask that this be a safe place for dialogue. And please be respectful of the beliefs that are expressed, whether you agree with them or not, so we can get a better understanding of where we all stand on this important issue. So one of the things I've come to realize with a lifelong interest in, in military history, I know my wife completely disagrees with me on this, but warfare is part of the human condition. And uh, as I said this morning, 100 years ago this month, beginning at the end of September and into October and November, the American Expeditionary Force fought its bloodiest campaign as World War I was drawing to a close. And looking at the casualty figures, half of the number of men who were lost in Vietnam were killed in just a month fighting in a, a, north, a corner of northeastern France. So when you think about it, 50 years after that, uh, after that um, event in northeastern France, the United States was involved in a war in Southeast Asia in a place called Vietnam. So it's appropriate here uh, that we use the release of a documentary in a national format to focus that on a uh, local lens here in Kansas City. Because I think all of us have experiences with Vietnam. Now, I was born in 1963, so my first memories of Vietnam are very impressionistic. Um, but the two television events I remember as a kid was Neil Armstrong landing on the moon in July of 1969, and a very faint memory of sitting in front of the television and seeing black and white photographs float across the screen of dead bodies. We all have memories of Vietnam, whether some of you fought there, experienced it uh, on the home front, or like me, creating an impression that stuck with you, in my case now, for almost uh, 40 years. 
So it's, uh, Ken Burns uh, spent 10 years making this documentary. He has a voice in this film. Uh, all of us in our discussions have, uh, have our own feelings about how he told that story, but never, nevertheless, uh, he, he devoted his masterful techniques to telling a very, very controversial and very emotional story. So I think it's appropriate then we uh, unpack the documentary through the lens of local history. So I will turn it over to the panel. I don't know which, how you want We're to. going to start with Bill, who's okay. going to give us uh, a lovely summary of the various criticisms of the film he's read, because a lot of the criticism, all three of that you mentioned, are reflected in the programming that, that Lindsay and I did. Well, thank you. That, that was a really nice, better introduction I could ever possibly give myself. <laughs> um, so in an interview, Ken Burns stated that if after the release of the Vietnam War, everyone, in, uh, everyone on the right thought that he was a commie and everyone on the left thought that he was a fascist, then he would consider the series a success. Okay, I disagree a little bit with that. Uh, there should be some consensus and common ground on the essential historical facts of the war in Vietnam. Now the problem is that 50 years after the war, Vietnam is far from settled history. And at the end of the day, it's personal opinion, experience, knowledge or memory of the war in Vietnam that impacts and influences perspective. And I've seen no evidence that Burns and Novak moved the needle in that regard. So during my project, I've, I've surveyed, I've, I've read through more than 80 reviews of the programming. Uh, and as you might guess, they, there's a lot of different perspectives on the war, but they do break out into pretty general categories, pretty easy categories. There, there is the, the mainstream or traditional print media opinion of what was presented in the series. Uh, there's conservative uh, opinions about the series. There's uh, liberal or left-wing opinions about the series. And then the one that really struck me the most or that is most unique is the perspective of Vietnamese, uh, the Vietnamese diaspora. Now, with regard though to the first three, uh, we can see how they go. And, and yeah, I, don't worry, I'm not going to read 80 reviews to you verbatim because that would take a really long time. But if you're talking about the presentation of the anti-war movement uh, in the series, one commenter says, the filmmakers pay considerable attention to the anti-war movement. Another says, Burns and Novick give inordinate weight to the words of anti-war veterans who at least one-third of those appearing on screen having expressed anti-war views or supported anti-war causes prior to filming. Another says, the real Achilles heel of the Vietnam War is Burns and Novick's disdain for the anti-war movement. Another says, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's production of the Vietnam War has but one objective, to reinforce the standard anti-war narrative that the Vietnam War was unwinnable, illegal, immoral, and ineptly conducted by the Allies from start to finish. And yet another, the bad news is that in their portrayal of the war's opponents, Burns and Novak are at best inconsistent, at worst intellectually lazy. Clearly, there's not a lot of agreement on what anybody 
or any of us really saw in this 18-hour series. Now, one thing I found generally is agreed upon, and that is regarding a particular statement that starts the series, which is, begun in good faith by decent people, and I quote here, it really should have been decent men, because men were responsible for this. Begun in good faith by decent people out of fateful misunderstandings prolonged because it seemed easier to muddle through than admit that it had been caused by tragic decisions. Nobody really likes that statement. Everybody feels that there was more import to that. And it feels like something that was put out there as a balm onto a wound, as some type of absolution for what you were about to see. But the reality is it, it just does not get to that point. Now, as I said, I could, I could continue with different segments and pieces, but I'm really going to jump ahead to a couple of comments because I really like the way uh, that some of the reviewers framed it and examined the content of the series, and it's amazing what you can get in single-liners such as, it's a kaleidoscope extravaganza for the sensate voyeur of military mayhem. If that doesn't describe every single military museum and movie in history, I don't know what does. In fact, I think we ought to have t-shirts that have made up with that and just wear them at work. It, it would be completely appropriate. Don't you agree, Gordon? Can you say that one more time? I can. I can slow it down. It's a kaleidoscopic extravaganza for the sensate voyeur of military mayhem. I assume it was Tom Wolfe. Uh, no, it wasn't Tom Wolfe. I'd have to go back up into my notes and see who that was. It, oh, no, I know it was from commondreams.org, which is a, a, a socialist website. Um, I, dug, I dug deep to try and find a lot of these reviews. Um, but as I said, I am going to spend some time reading from the Vietnamese commentators on it, because their reflections are by far and away, I think, the most compelling. Uh, and, and, and it shouldn't come as a revelation to any of us. Uh, that the Vietnamese have a very strong opinion of, of what was presented and how it was presented. And we know that the, the, the majority of reviewers who are not Vietnamese, of nationalist diaspora, say, oh, look, and how nice it is that they included the Vietnamese, right? So from the Vietnamese perspective, we get everything I learned focused on American lives lost and how the war divided America. No one dwelled on Vietnamese lives lost. People talked about Vietnam as an object, a strategy, a source of tragic upheaval. There was no idea of it without war. Another commenter says, the narrative always veered back to its shiny center, the white American soldier, and his complex feelings of fear, hatred, guilt, and remorse. In Ken Burns' series, Ken Burns' version perpetuates the story of white American saviors failing to rescue poor, incompetent South Vietnamese from the ruthless, wily North Vietnamese, conventionalizing problematic assumptions, not only for people who survived the war, but also for younger generations watching it on PBS for the first time. And for years, even still, people have asked me what side my family was on. The question always baffles me. Isn't it obvious that if we're in the United States as refugees, having lost a war and a country, isn't it obvious what side we are on? Somehow, many Americans still don't know the history of what in Vietnam is called the American War. 
and the, the, the very powerful comments, and a statement that I read in one of the reviews, which is uh, really a striking reminder, is that the National Vietnam Memorial in D.C., at its tallest part, is 10 feet high. If there was an equivalent memorial for Vietnamese people, it would be the height of the Washington Monument. So Mark reflected a bit on what he experienced and remembers during the war, and all of us have to be able to pull back and, and reflect on that, and I, I'm sure many people in this room were born after the conflict, but like Mark, I was born, I was born in 1960 uh, and grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So my earliest memories of the war uh, were colored and somewhat by my living in Madison, going downtown into Madison and uh, smelling tear gas in the air, which was part of downtown Madison all through the, the latter half of the 60s, especially. Uh, 1970, there was uh, one domestic bombing in the United States directed at the war. That was the bombing of Sterling Hall in Madison uh, in 1970. I was awakened by the blast. Uh, when, when it went off, and still can remember that clearly. But the thing that impacted me most in looking back at the war was that as an 11-year-old in 1971, I received a selective service packet in the mail, an envelope from the Department of Defense, and it had a buck slip for each branch of service, color-coded buck slip in it, and so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard. And as an 11-year-old, I was terrified that I was going to have to go to Vietnam. Because in 1971, I knew nothing other than the Vietnam War going on. My entire childhood had been watching the Vietnam War with my dad on the nightly news, looking at National Geographic, looking at Life magazine. That was the war that I was familiar with. And I thought, this is going to keep going. Um, my dad assured me it wouldn't. So that, that was uh, a good thing uh, for me on my behalf. And I'm just going to make one last statement um, about my opinion of the series because I guess I'm a reviewer. We are all reviewers at the end of the day, right? And if I was going to have any criticism, and it, it would be, we could have a, a much longer discussion about what I'm going to say. Um, but the one part of it that I would call into question was the use of all the iconic imagery. While they mined thousands and thousands of photographs and thousands of feet of film footage, the iconic images to come out of war, the immolation of the monks, uh, the, the shooting of the VC sapper uh, during Tet, uh, uh, the, uh, as, 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 as she's referred to, the napalm girl. These are all iconic images of the war. But for a generation that knows nothing about the war, these are brought forward again and presented, and they immediately create a framework for what's being viewed. And while those are iconic images for a reason, they're singular examples out of a much greater conflict that had a much broader impact beyond those Im images and beyond those events. So with that, I, I will stop and pass on the mic. Um, so I'm Lindsay Fote, and I work at the local PBS station. And um, as a as a quiz, does anyone remember what the tagline for this series was? 
may have seen it on promotions. It's okay. I'm not going to fail all of you. The, the tagline for this documentary series is there is no single truth in war. And um, I feel like with, I mean, you know, understanding those, those criticisms um, and, you know, Ken and Lynn, when they went into this process, knew that there would be those criticisms. Um, even Tim O'Brien, who was an advisor on the film, begged Lynn Novick, you know, do not do this. You do not know what you are in for. This is still too fresh. People are not ready to talk about this. Um, locally, as we were trying to fundraise to do documentary work around this series and do local storytelling, we were told by funders, this is too controversial. We don't want to touch this. Um, and to me, that's a real um, shame and um, pretty disgusting that we aren't that some people don't want to start talking about this history while people who lived through it are still with us, um, even though we are losing Vietnam veterans quicker than we are losing World War II veterans. Um, so all of that said, we knew when this series was coming that there were going to be people all over the board with how they felt about it. Um, and so what we did was, um, I do community engagement as well as production, um, we decided we want to tell the story of Kansas City and we're going to hand it over to Kansas City to help us tell that story. Um, and we did that in a number of ways. And Katie will talk about the amazing work that our local libraries did to help tell that local story. Um, but what we did at Kansas City PBS, uh, we built a website. We collected stories online, um, not only from veterans, um, but from refugees or anybody who had a first-person narrative uh, about their experiences during this time period. We built a uh, mobile story booth, a la StoryCorps, um, where individuals, um, or at most probably two people, could cram in there and record a story um, or memories, um, their memories about the war. So we had, um, you know, relatives come and record a story about a loved one. We had a lot of veterans come and talk about their experience serving. Um, Another way we collected stories was we, uh, as many of your institutions probably like to do, put students to work. Um, we held a uh, storytelling contest for local middle school, high school, and college students, and we asked them to interview someone who, again, had a first-person narrative from this time period. Um, and those students were rewarded with um, getting to meet Ken Burns and co-director Lynn Novick when they came to Kansas City last fall. Um, we also recorded uh, a number of stories of, of service within our own studios and produced four um, sort of documentary digital pieces that told the story of the local impact um, of the war on Kansas City. So we focused on why people, um, how people ended up in the military or their initial feelings about the war. If you know anything about World War II history in Kansas City, um, there, were, there was a lot going on here, not so much during um, the Vietnam era. So we talked about that. We talked about the protest movements in Kansas City. Um, one thing that's really um, important to that story is the veteran protest movement. Um, if you've seen the series, John Musgrave uh, is featured prominently throughout the series. He is um, a local boy and um, he was very active in um, Vietnam veterans against the war when he when he came back. 
Um, and finally, we talked about the memorials in um, Kansas City and how they came to be. The first freestanding memorial on a college campus in the United States to the Vietnam War was at University of Kansas in Lawrence, just 40 minutes down the road here. Um, and this, it was thanks to the students that that memorial was established in, in the mid-80s, which I think is a real testament to the students there. Um, and then the memorial that's in Kansas City, if you go towards the plaza, there's a memorial at 47th and Broadway um, that is dedicated to regional um, people who were killed in Vietnam. But I think it's, it's worth noting, I hope all of you have had a chance to go to the fantastic World War I Museum and Memorial while you are here in town. Um, the money for that memorial after World War I, help me Stacy, a matter of weeks? 10 days. Kansas Cityans raised 2.5 million to build that beautiful memorial. In comparison, the Vietnam Memorial, the efforts, they broke ground on it in 1984. Veterans worked for two years trying to collect money to create that memorial fountain and scrimped, could, could not get it done. Finally, they got the wall up with the names on it and someone graffitied it with a swastika and other um, profanity. And so then the Vietnam veterans camped out there and um, a local millionaire ended up giving the rest of the money to fund it. But you look at the difference between those, those two wars and um, uh, we're still dealing with so many of of those issues and then talking to the veterans who were involved in that memorial, you know, it's still heartbreaking for them that, that it was that hard to raise the money to, um, for that memorial. Um, Mark, do you want to interject here? No. <laughs> oh. oh, Kleenex, sorry. She wrote me a, no a note, give to Mark, and I said, oh. what do I need to? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> so, that, in a, in a nutshell, is a lot of the local um, production and storytelling and engagement that we work to do with our, with our community and really handing, handing it back over to them to, to say, your story is important, there is no single truth in war, and um, let's start a conversation um, about, about this war. Um, because if nothing else, that's what this series absolutely has done, um, and it's about time. So now Lindsay is going to pass this to me. I'm Katie Stover with the Kansas City Public Library. And how do you pull so many different people together to talk about such a sensitive subject? Libraries are traditionally a safe place in which to do that. And the programming that we put on is designed to appeal to as many people as possible. So after chatting with Lindsay about well, how do we do this, what does this look like, it's my experience that when everyone can share a common thing to talk about, we can enlarge the conversation. So when Lindsay approached the library about a reading component, I said, yes, let's do this. Let me see if the things they carried is one of the NEA's big read selections for the year, and it was. So the Kansas City Public Library approached the other five libraries in the greater Kansas City area. That's Johnson County in Kansas, Mid-Continent Public Library in Kansas City, Olathe Public Library in Kansas, Kansas City, Kansas Public Library, and North Kansas City Public Library. All six of the libraries in the greater Kansas City area came together. We, we worked with KCPT and put in a grant for the things they carried so we could all present this book to all of Kansas City. We got the grant. We didn't get as much money as we wanted. Who does? 
but it was amazing what we could do with the money we got, and we spent most of it on books that we gave away to anybody that asked at a library at an event, and we put on lots and lots of events. Mid-Continent Public Library, I think, gave away 400 copies of the things they carried at their veterans' salute the uh, last, last September. So other programming that we did in order to foster conversation, it's a lot easier for folks to come together in small book groups. So in addition to the larger events that we staged, such as bringing in Tim O'Brien, and we brought in Mark Bowden, who wrote Hui 1968, in addition to those programs, we found that it was easier for folks to start these conversations if they could talk about music. So we brought in Doug Bradley to talk, who gave a pro program on his book, We've Got to Get Out of This Place. And so when people have a common entry point, such as a book that they've all read, or music that they all know, or even poetry, or a local author that they're connecting with, it's a lot easier for them to start the conversation. We also found some local, in addition to John Musgrave, who, if you want to see his collection of poetry, Notes to the Man Who Shot Me, I brought a copy of that. We found a woman, Lou Eisenbrandt, who was a nurse in Vietnam, and we brought her in to tell her story, and how lucky were we that she had just penned her memoir, and it had just been printed, and Lou, Lou went to every single library, it went to one library at least, in, of all the six libraries, to talk about her story, and that opened up so much memory, especially for women who served. And one of the things we also did with this program, you'll notice that we had an awful lot of speakers. We had Andrea Warren, who wrote Escape from Saigon, a children's book. We had H.C. Palmer, who wrote The Feet of the Messenger, his poetry about his experiences. One of the things that the Greater Libraries of Kansas City did was we're all various sizes. We all come from different revenue bases, and it didn't matter how much you could put into the pot when it came to time or staff or money or other resources. Everybody shared equally in the credit, and everybody shared equally in the programming. So it was very important to me that I, when we brought in Doug Bradley, um, who, like all of us, needs to meet the mortgage, so speaks for a price. So it was important to me that no matter who was paying his honorarium, everybody got a chance to have Doug speak at their library. Lou Eisenbrandt she hit all of the major libraries to talk about her book. It was really important that we reach as many people as possible with all of the programming so that we could get the conversations going. In addition to you know the typical things that libraries do, bring in authors, talk about books, we also um, had film programming. We had other music and music programming, so it wasn't just Doug playing those awesome tunes from the 1960s, which brought out a lot of veterans who sang along at the very end, too. We got to get out of this place. Uh, we had a musical written about the son of a refugee and his experiences as, the, as, as a refugee to this country. And he's taking that musical now to Chicago. It's called The Butcher's Son. If you want to see more of our programming, the Kansas City Public Library and all of the libraries, we combined our forces to make one booklet that we distributed throughout the city. And as Lindsay will tell you, during the fall of, of 2017, you really couldn't go anywhere in Kansas City without everyone knowing about the documentary and about the fact that all the libraries were hosting discussions surrounding the things they carried. But other programming we did, we didn't just focus on veterans and adult readers. 
or teens, we focused on kids. And one of the things we did for, to um, open children's eyes to what the Vietnam War means in America is we, we did programming that promoted Vietnamese culture and exploration and exposed that to children. We did story times and dial a story that let kids know that this is an important part of American history and this is, this is a good entry point for kids. Um, we did all sorts of programming that we brought in rock bands to play music at the time. We brought in some folk bands to play protest music and then we juxtaposed those two. Like what, what did the protest music do that the rock music couldn't do. We talked about civil rights. We had two programs on protests in the United States. What did that look like? What did the Vietnam War look like on the home front for many of these folks? So we, we did as wide a variety of programming as we possibly could. We got as much buy-in from our administrators as we could and our funders, which were not as great as we expected. Um, it's a little easier for libraries to ask for funding because who doesn't love a library? Um, that's really bad form to not like a library. <laughs> so, uh, and libraries are typically really good at shoestring things, so we're never asking for a lot of money. So most of what you'll see, we did on a shoestring. We did a lot of um, negotiating and begging and pleading and trading off of services. We're really good at that with libraries. We're really good at promoting. So we were able to get the funding we needed for the programming that we wanted to do. And, and that made our administrators and our, and our funders happy. But what we really did at library level was we involved our frontline staff. And when you get the buy-in from the people who are talking to the public and hearing the stories, then you really have a reach that's incomparable. So our, our frontline staff were talking to the veterans and talking to the patrons, and that is pretty much how we got the word out about this program. And so they were able to get in touch with a lot of libraries, regular patrons, a lot of our homeless veterans, and get them connected with services, social services that libraries don't typically provide that we know about. We were able to encourage them to come to the programs and let them know that yes, you're welcome and we do want to hear your story. Please share your experiences with us. And something else we did for our public, our frontline staff was we made sure that they all had some training and information about active supportive listening for our patrons who had stories to tell. So the frontline staff were very good at listening, taking the time to do what we've been encouraging everyone to do, which is listen to the stories and then use their library skills and connect those people with the services or the materials in the library that would help them further in their journey. Um, we provided information about suicide hotlines and other supportive services in the Kansas City area. We worked with the veteran writers groups. We worked with um, KCPT Story Booth. Um, it traveled to all the libraries. It was wonderful to hear some of the stories that the people of Kansas City had to share. And we heard some pretty interesting stories. So that's the programming that we did to reach as many people as possible. And now I believe Mark would like to open it up to you. Well, uh, just one question for the panel. Um, at its core, uh, since I work for the Park Service, it gives me, a, uh, we do training all the time. 
And because I'm a history guy and a lot of people are critter people, uh, it's my job to expose them to history. And history and interpretation intersect in one key thing. Uh, history and interpretation is more than facts and figures. It's about providing opportunities for meaning, either emotionally or intellectually. And given uh, everybody's experiences, in particular at the local level, uh, uh, I know that, and, and in particular for Bill's comment that it didn't move the meat, it didn't move the needle. But if history is about meaning, and we're 50 years out, uh, given your observations about the programs that you did, where are we in in building uh, a better uh, understanding of the meaning of this controversial event? Yeah, geez, Mark. Could have warned us you're gonna. It just came to me, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry to uh, to to. Uh, I mean, I would. I'd be interested to hear everyone. You know, y'all's perspective about where we think we are. Um, I know, I and Katie. I'm sure this is true for you. For all the veterans that I interviewed and worked with, um, got a lot of thank yous, and that um, this is that last fall meant a lot to them, and that there were conversations happening, and that they were able to share stories. Um, it, it meant a lot, and it went a long way um, in in some of their healing. In particular, I think about. Um, a Marine named Tommy Pons, who served uh, two tours in Vietnam and was there in the mid-60s. And when he came back home from his second tour, um, well, he talks about how he would, the, his church would send him cookies and care packages early on. Um, and then as the war progressed, he would get nothing. And um, his mother was even um, kind of embarrassed to bring him to, to church um, just because of how the community was starting to feel about the war. And um, he did not get a warm reception when he came home to the downtown Kansas City airport. And um, he was one of our special guests when Ken and Lynn came to town um, last year. And watching the excerpt of the film, there is a protester in the film who says, um, I'm sorry. Um, and just that, you know, we were kids too. And he wrote me after that and said, you know, Lindsay, it's meant so much to sh share my story and be able to share that with my children. But then hearing, hearing that um, has meant so much to me. Um, so I can say, I can speak in, in the, for the individuals that I've observed that um, it did, it has, it has made a difference. Having organized about 25 book discussions around this book, the things they carried, and I saw lots of different readers come through my book groups all over the city. Uh, lest you think that millennials and 20-somethings don't like to read, they do, and they do like print books. So I would have groups. I, I had almost one veteran every time I threw a book group, and I'd have uh, other folks various ages, and a lot of 20, 30-somethings. And what benefited these small groups most was having the veterans or the people with experience of the Vietnam War era years talk to these younger people in the group. So if you're wondering where are we now, I would say from my observations that we are at a point where the younger people do want to hear these stories and they have the patience to hear these stories and they are welcoming these stories. So that was gratifying for me to see. Different conversations happening 
that started with this book and sometimes went off on a tangent from this book, and that's okay. Tim O'Brien would definitely approve of that <laughs> because the conversation about what he's writing about is happening right there in the groups. So I can tell you that. So I work, uh, I work closely with a lot of veterans, specifically Vietnam veterans. Um, and I think that by and large, if you, at least the fellows I've worked with, if, if you did a survey of them, you'd find that, that they were glad this was out there. Uh, the, the challenges with it, uh, a lot of people feel that it's not that far removed from the PBS series in the 1980s, the television war, the Vietnam television war, which I, in the 1980s, I thought was a great series. Uh, but other than uh, giving it the Ken Burns treatment, that was the assessment was, eh, it's Ken Burns treatment of the, uh, of the television war. But the veterans, by and large, say, hey, you know what? It's good, at least it's out there and we're talking about it. The unsettled history, though, that comes from uh, divergent perspectives on the war uh, is a real problem because people are not willing to move off of their talking point. Uh, and, and as I said, there, there's real, there, there's, there's solid history to the Vietnam War. We know what happened. It's not all a secret, although there is a significant amount of still classified material regarding the Vietnam War. But that, that we won't see for a, a, a bit of time. But we know what happened in specific events. There are great numbers of veterans who are not willing to accept or move away from their point with regard to a specific, like, like the, the Tonkin Gulf, all right, is a perfect example. We know what happened in Tonkin Gulf, but people are highly divided on how they, and, and firmly locked into their position and their opinions with regard to the Tonkin Gulf. Uh, and there are points like that over and over again you find. The people that I find coming forward more right now are veterans who are proud of the Vietnam service. So with regard to people who, uh, you know, and, and that was, re again, a reflection on the series that, oh, these veterans, uh, you know, they're kind of all apologizing. The people from the protest movement said, ah, oh, you got apologetic protesters. Both sides said, you know what, I think what we did was okay. You know, and, and whether you were uh, served in Vietnam in, in a combat capacity, these guys say, hey, you know what? I, I went and did my service, and I did what I was supposed to do, and I'm not going to be ashamed of doing what I was supposed to do. I don't, you know, and I don't know why I should be made to feel sorry for it or apologize for that. I, I did that in good conscience. That's where I was told to go by my government, and I did what my government asked of me. Similarly, protests say, hey, we're solidly against the war. We are still solidly against the war. It was a misrepresentation to say that we are against the veterans. We were not. We were against the war itself, and we were interested in getting people home and ending the war. And we also are not going to be ashamed or embarrassed by that. So it seems appropriate now, then we can. Oh, oh, oh just, I'm sorry. just one quick note I was going to add. Um, Carl Marlantis opens the film, and he talks about how he and his wife had very close friends, and um, it wasn't until decades after the war at a dinner party that they realized both he and um, the uh, husband of their friends had both served in Vietnam. 
because it felt like that much of a dirty secret for them. Um, and that was something that um, I heard repeatedly in interviews with veterans uh, that they worked at a company for 30 years and no one ever knew that they served, even though that there were definitely people they were working with who had also served. Um, and there is one um, story that I did want to share of a gentleman named Bill, um, who I met after the series. And um, before the series, he would never identify as a Vietnam veteran. He's retired now. But um, after watching the series um, and everything that happened here locally, he went out and bought a uh, Vietnam vet cap and um, is able to wear it proudly now. So at this point, it seems appropriate to open the floor. Questions, comments, concerns, compliments. Yes, ma'am. And do you feel like it, it made a difference? Luckily, uh, 
idea of the issues that people might have than the actual issues that do or don't exist. Um, so, yes. You know, and I, oh. that's, no, I, I'm not going to, I just, I think that's terrific, but it reminds me also, Peggy, are you here? Yeah, you know, Peggy also told me this morning about an interesting program they conducted. Can you also can you add that to that sure. discussion, please? Um. <laughs> and the discussions that we had afterwards were so wonderful. And we ranged in topics from what children are taught in American high school in terms of American history. And as you know, you have 24 weeks of your 240 years of American history. And um, how students didn't know that. Um, what, um, and there was a couple of ladies that um, were protesters during the war, and um, they added their part. And, um, it was actually, this group became such a very good group together, and they were sad when the series was over. And they wanted me to come up with, they're like, okay, now we can watch the house, let's watch the fog of war, and we're gonna keep doing this. And I'm like, sorry guys, it gets busy around here, I can't do that. Um, but it was very wonderful, and it was a way for me to be able to bridge that gap into that community, because I've tried repeatedly to bring in experts, um, academics, to talk about um, the Vietnam War and to bring in topics. And what we find happens is that unless the presentation is presented by an event, and it always seems to morph into their own story, anyone that's not there is not allowed to speak. And we actually have one point where we have to protect our speaker because um, there was a gentleman in the audience that had such strong feelings that he was making things up that the speaker was using derogatory words to represent the Vietnamese and that he was saying that they, um, and none of that happened. He had just gone into a completely different place and we physically have to protect our speaker. And so going forward, you know, I'm very, very conscientious about whom I bring in to speak. And the gentleman that we had to protect, all he was talking about was, his doctoral dissertation on the papers that he read in Lyndon B. Johnson's and what he had written in his doctoral dissertation about what Johnson knew when. And there was no, no any discussion about opinions or feelings. It was like, here's the facts, here's the documents. And it went very, very south. So when we decided to do this series, um, I took some precautions beforehand. And I actually had several um, off-duty policemen in the audience with us. Um, just because I wanted, in case anything would go wrong, to be able to prevent it from going too far wrong. And I also had available, all from the local um, county veterans organization, all of the crisis information right then and there with us, so that if someone should have severe problems or have reminiscence that they didn't want to have or bringing back flashbacks or anything, that we were able to have all that material right there with us. Um, Luckily, this was a good way to bridge it into it. Now, because of that and because of all the 
you know, we started out with the first week probably around 42, and they're very, very consistent, and by the end, we were closer to 60. Jeez. Between them having that, now we're feeling comfortable with actually putting up our first exhibit on Vietnam, and since it's a naval museum, um, we're actually going to, of course, do the entire uh, spectrum of what Vietnam was and highlight the other services, but we're going to primarily focus on the Navy of Vietnam. Did the 60 people become members of the museum? <laughs> well, I have to say 30 of them were my volunteers already. Uh. Yes, sir. So this is already kind of been somewhat covered, but as this is still settling here, uh, how did, especially for Kansas City folks, uh, when you're dealing with a relatively new thing here and public programming, this mix of uh, history uh, versus memory and misconception? Uh, I, I, for example, my museum is butts up against uh, off an Air Force Base, which is a big role in the Cold War here. And talking with, with veterans, Air Force veterans, they say they returned, you know, they got into their car, they went home, and that was that. You talk to their families, you hear the, the more typical narrative of they were spit on, they were called baby killers. And so in a public setting where there's still a lot of tensions, how, how did you deal with this, or was this an issue? I mean, I think you should talk about how it's front and center, I mean, in, in the things they carried, I mean, the fact that that's a novel and how Tim talks about truth and, um, and memory we did we didn't we didn't really run up against very many uh, heated conversations in our book discussion groups I'd like to think that that's because we made it very plain this was a safe space you could say whatever you wanted to and and people were pretty good about respecting each other and listening to different opinions and there were quite a few differing opinions because our closing keynote for our entire um, big read was David Lambertson, a former ambassador. And his topic was a little controversial, and we had some pushback. The library sets itself up as a place for civil discourse, so people were welcome to approach the microphone, and they did, and engage in some difference of opinion with Ambassador Lambertson. And that settled just fine, that was fine. And later on I had a conversation with someone who said, he's totally full of shit, that's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> and I politely listened to that because I don't know enough and what he said sound kind of, sounded credible. But we didn't run into at the library that many heated debates that uh, we're certainly open to that, we're, we're well, we can handle that. But everybody that came in was respectful, knowing that the library was a neutral place. Lindsay, did you run into any of that anywhere? Well, I mean, you talk about the sort of fallibility of memory. And um, you know, for the stories that we collected online, out in the community, um, those you know, we collected and sort of took people at their word. When we did more serious interviews for the documentary and the stories of service that we uh, filmed in our studios, we did um, collect um, DD-214s from every veteran mm -hmm. verifying um, they served where they said they served. Um, but beyond that, there's not, um, I mean, I'd be interested to hear if, if you have solutions um, for, you know, um, yeah, what do you do about human memory and, and the idea that some of uh, certain things still stick with you and others don't. Um, 
but um, you know, that's that's kind of how we dealt with that. And I would say we held um, two major screenings of the film. We didn't have uh, we didn't screen all 18 hours, which I love that you did that, Peggy. Um, but uh, like the event that we did with Ken and Lynn, um, we did that at the Midland Theater for. Um, 1,800 people screening excerpts and then a conversation with them as well as John Musgrave and Dr. James Wilbanks who are both in the film um, and uh, local. <clears throat> and one of the things that we um, did with that and with uh, subsequent screening in Lawrence is we had um, professionals from the VA on hand um, should anyone need them and people did partake of um, going out into the lobby and we let them know, hey, we have um, counselors from the VA here with us um, and you are welcome to talk to them at any point. Um, so that was something we did. Another thing that we uh, did, um, because there were, um, and the, the library didn't, didn't do this because they're really good at handing, uh, handling um, sort of potentially volatile crowds. I, I, think, I think you guys are masters at that, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, we always used, um, we always had people write down their questions and submit them, and um, that was how we would, um, sort of moderate our conver conversations um, in that way. So prior to being at the First Division Museum, I was with the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, and we are part of a, of a project, a statewide public programming project, a PBS project, the Vietnam War Stories. Um, when the heck was that? In the late two, uh, 2008, I think it was. And as part of that, we went around the state and did listening sessions. Uh, there were two of us, and we went around and conducted listening sessions. And it was the first time that that type of uh, event uh, was taking place. Now, we had, we had a segment from the, from the production that we brought along with us, but it was all strictly veteran interviews. And we went up into northern Wisconsin, spent quite a bit of time in northern Wisconsin, and, and this was drawing a lot of people out of the woodwork. And there became some pretty heated discussions in these general sessions, because these people had not done this before, period. Uh, they had not wanted to talk about their experiences or had not had the, an opportunity to talk about their experiences previously. Um, and so it did become challenging, but what we did to, to, for us, we, we anticipated there could be these issues, so we had local moderators uh, generally pull in the VFW or the American Legion and get the, 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 the post commander and say, hey, we just want you here, you know, because you, these guys might not be in your post, but you're probably going to know these guys, um, and, and you can maybe help us. And that generally worked to diffuse it. And, you know, if, if, if it, we, we never had a situation like where Peggy described where we were really concerned, or maybe we were just stupid and didn't realize it. Um, but we would, if somebody was, you know, really insistent, we'd say, well, let, you know, let's just talk about this afterward. We can continue the discussion over a beer <laughs> down, down in the corner. Uh, so that solved it. But with regard to the, the question of memory in a specific event, something I do, I do it as part of my job. In fact, um, next week I'm going to be in Lawton, uh, down by Fort Sill, and we're going to be interviewing uh, 12 uh, veterans of a particular uh, fire base uh, in Vietnam when it was partially overrun by a VC Sapper Battalion in 1968. I'm very interested in individual stories as they align for a particular event. So talking to multiple veterans who have experienced one engagement to get their perspectives. And the range of opinions and perspectives you get 
is, um, is, is truly amazing. Uh, I, I, two weeks ago, I was at a, an event that was uh, for a reconnaissance unit, a Vietnam reconnaissance unit that had been getting together for about six years. And I, I'm, I'm just going to lay out, they were describing a, a particular uh, engagement they had. And uh, the uh, fellow who was the lieutenant said, oh, well, we shot up these three VC on the trail. And, and I moved, uh, you know, the point to slack and myself moved on further. And, and it, we had a new guy with us. Ford was with us. And Ford and, and, the, and our RTO stopped by the three bodies. And as soon as we went away, the RTO said, I'm going to take a shit and dropped my, his radio and ran off in the woods and left the new guy with the three dead guys in the radio. Well, the RTO was there. And he said, no, LT, that's not what happened at all. He said, there was only one dead VC, and I took my radio with me to take a shit. Because <laughs> I'd never leave my radio. But those, uh, that's the kind of perspective that you see. So if we step out, and it's the, the micro versus the macro view, right? And trying to balance and manage all of those. And if, if people can't have consensus even on their into most intimate combat experiences, it spells out the real challenge that we're trying to get like, going up to that higher level. Yeah, I worked um, in my prior uh, park before um, going to Mount Rainier. I worked at Nez Perce National Historical Park in North Central Idaho for 13 years and working amongst uh, Native people who had been in that, uh, in that part of Idaho since time immemorial gave me a perspective on history and memory that I've never had before. And when an elder says to you, this is the way it happened, you say, yes, sir, this is the way it happened. But what was phenomenal is, in particular, the creation stories provided a degree of validation for the archaeological evidence that suggested that, in fact, the Nez Perce had been in this area for anywhere between nine and 13,000 years. And as someone who went through graduate school with a certain perspective, I, uh, I'll reveal my bias. I dismissed oral history because of its unreliability. But it, I, I've come to appreciate that it adds valuable context to the evidence that we're, we're weighing and sifting through. And as, as complicated as it is, I think we can't move forward without hearing these voices. Uh, it's up to us, I suppose, to, to sort things out in the end. But um, I, I, I'm very familiar with the debates over history and memory. But I think it's something we have to accept as professionals and, and move on as we try to find meaning. I just want to say, I think one of the beauties of um, Ken and Lynn's film is that while, um, I mean, they had a team of at least 20 advisors that, you know, that they'd been working with for a decade that included Tim O'Brien, uh, Dr. James Wilbanks, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and you can bet that they, you know, I mean, we, you talked about the controversial opening statement of ended in failure. They agonized over every word and would debate um, back and forth about the history and making sure that it was factually correct. Um, but what I think is the real power of the series is that, um, I mean, yes, we all know Carl Marlantis and Tim O'Brien, but for the most part, they interviewed um, people and voices that we haven't heard from, um, ordinary people, um, people like John Musgrave. Um, 
and to bring it just I felt brought a level of humanity to the storytelling um, that was really really powerful. Yes, sir. Um, we we didn't. Um, although there is um, there are fairly active uh, Korean War vets um, in this community, and we'd see them at larger veteran uh, events. But no, nobody um, submitted their story or anything. Still have time. <laughs> Out of curiosity, how many how many people in this room are veterans? Veterans. Oh, Certainly, I think um, uh, one of my special interests is, is the Cold War because we're now in the preservation world when you're 50 years beyond, that's a dividing point when between something becomes historical and something, become, and be, something becomes ahistorical. But um, I, I think that it's a perspective that is valuable because 
Johnson and Kennedy were cold warriors through and through, and their decisions. I, one thing that I, that I um, personally was surprised at after watching the episodes, uh, Johnson to me emerged as a very sympathetic person because he was faced with these crushing decisions, uh, basically a new the new society or a war. If he wanted to prosecute it to the full extent that the general staff did, he would have had to mobilize the country in a way that, that politically he wasn't able to. And um, I, I, I think that we can't lose sight of, of the context that it is part of a Cold War, but it doesn't necessarily mean we can't focus in on some of the more controversial aspects of it. Uh, the Cold War, uh, I, my own personal fear is that it will become forgotten in terms of historical preservation, in terms of collective memory, because we focus on certain events and, and we, we, we can't see the forest for the trees. Um, that's, my, that's my personal perspective. Did the, ser did the series touch on branch involvement before? Yeah, the, yeah, so the first episode start is not even in the 20th century so it it starts early <laughs> yeah um if there's nothing else uh, share an update for folks certainly um so one of the the bigger screening events that we did was in lawrence kansas not far from where john musgrave lives and um we had about 800 people cram into a theater there for a screening of of clips and afterwards um, had a conversation with John in front of an audience, and someone asked him um, if he had ever been back to Vietnam, um, as a, a fair number of veterans have taken, taken the trip and gone back. And he told them that, um, he, I mean, he's been medically disabled since he was 19 because of um, injuries that he suffered while he was in Vietnam. Um, and so it's never financially been possible for him to go back. Um, right after that event, we had a gentleman come up to us and pledge $10,000 uh, to match $10,000 to send John and his wife Shannon back to Vietnam. Um, and subsequently, um, other community members who were at the event set up a GoFundMe, and people from all over the world gave money so that John and his wife um, can go to Vietnam. And a week from Tuesday, uh, they leave. We have four more minutes. Any other questions, comments, concerns? If not, oh yes, ma'am. Like, I know Ronnie, and I 
I'm so grateful to the veterans who are talking. Because they're the only ones who can keep these guys who never came home alive. And I took everything that Billy told me and I typed it all out. I took all his emails and um, I gave it to Ronnie's brother. And um, I just felt compelled to tell that story today. His name was Ronnie Showmaker. He died in September of 67. I just want people to know that he lived and that he had a wonderful childhood because my dad's told me all about it. And they uh, they almost single-handedly burned down their town <laughs> in Carroll, Illinois. And uh, I just feel so honored to have tried to discover his story. So I wanted to tell this story today. Thank you so much. Um, you know, uh, John Musgrave likes to say, and you know, when he's going back, he's um, he's visiting a lot of um, people that he he lost. He fought at Contien, which is Vietnamese for the Hill of Angels, and um, he carries this weight with him because he believes that as long as he carries the stories of his buddies, they are not gone. Um, so you carry Ronnie's story. And um, I hope you will share it with the Library of Congress or some other place um, so that, yeah, it continues to, to have, um, a, a, it, it will be there for, for all of us. Um, and what a, what a wonderful thing you've, you've done. Thank you. I would absolutely get Billy's permission to share his story or encourage him to um, share with the Library of Congress and just have a, have a conversation with him. You can talk with the panel afterwards yeah, too yeah. and they can give you strategies on how to make sure you're doing the right thing. Okay. On that point, um, we've reached our time limit, so thank you actually for, <laughs> for sharing. Um, that's what's special about the conference. And so uh, thank you all for attending our session and enjoy the rest of whatever today is. Friday. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll be around for questions if you have any. <laughs>